2: Hello everybody. Welcome to a special Back to the Bins. It's me, it's Dr. Bill Robinson, and once again we welcome our friends from Comic Geek Speak, uh, Chris Eberly and Adam Murdo, but we add to the list now our friend Ian Levenstein, who is also now a CGS regular.
0: Hello.
3: Thanks for having us on as always, Paul. It's a treat.
2: Oh, it's a treat for us to have you guys. We appreciate you making the time for us.
3: Mm-hmm. Of course. Just sorry we weren't able to make it a month or two earlier
4: than
2: this. as yeah. originally planned. Well, it's, you know, life gets in the way, and I totally get that. And, you know, you, you have your own show to, to, to do, so I, you know, when you when you make time for us, I appreciate it. Our pleasure. So, and, and as I said, and we talked about just for a moment beforehand, but, uh, you know, we, Ian, you know, you and I met, you were doing uh, just comic timing. Now, is that still in existence
0: yeah, it's still in existence. I try to crank out an episode uh, at least once every you know two months or so, uh, and uh, our our latest one was on the uh, on the Joker movie that came out about uh, about two or three weeks ago. Okay, I
2: have not seen that one come up on my uh, phone.
0: Yep, episode 199. So we're one away from 200, and uh, I'm planning on uh, possibly reporting in person with Brent since I'm going to be in Orlando for Thanksgiving. So it may work out that way, but. Uh, Crossing my fingers on that.
2: Cool. Cool. And then, uh, how how often do you guys get together to record for CGS? Or how often do you try to? Is probably a well, better way to say. Well, we try to do
3: it once a week, but that's not always possible because of either technical issues or
0: schedules. Um, but ideally once a week. Yeah, we we well, we we've been lucky enough to have a wealth of episodes in the in the can uh, in, uh, in recent weeks, so we haven't had to do it uh, every week, but uh, it'll be catching up to us soon.
2: Yeah, we just wrapped up our, uh, we call it Assistant Editors Month, where we have other people do episodes just to give us a break for a while.
0: I <laughs> uh, love that.
4: In CGS land, we call that The Cabal. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, so, you, so you even have a better name for it than us. <laughs>
3: well, oh, come on, Paul. That's a great Marvel throwback. I love that.
2: Yeah, I even used uh, The first time we did it, you know, on the uh, the picture that went with each episode, I used a stamp from the Marvel Comics that they that they had on the cover of each issue.
0: Yep. Don't say we didn't warn you. <laughs> you'd be giving us a further break and further stuff to release on the feed by uh, by simulcasting this on both. So uh, life is easier that way.
2: I to, anything we could do to make life easier is is a plus. It's you know it's funny that you know this is all for fun. You know we're not making any money doing it, but. There is a sense of pressure to get it all done right and to get it, you know, to keep the schedule going and everything. Uh, it's all self-imposed, but there's still that pressure there.
0: Uh, that that was the entire reason I went to uh, Pennsylvania to meet these fine gentlemen uh, a week prior uh, was to get the Skype computer up and running, and that's how Murd's talking to you today. So it's all it's all about getting things up and running nice and smoothly.
2: Cool. All right, so. Uh... I guess we might as well hop right into it, and you three boys have bro- brought books with you, so I'm going to say dealer's choice. Who wants to go first?
0: I think Ian should go first. Ready? So uh, mine is the uh, the 1DC book of the bunch here, and uh, the the story behind this one is uh, is pretty simple. It's it, it it came out back in 2001, and I remember picking it up off the stands at my uh, my local comic shop near my uh, my college, Brooklyn College, uh, Bulletproof Comics and Cards, still in existence, uh, right there by the college. So. And I'm just going to
2: interrupt you. When I went to Brooklyn College for one year, mm-hmm. that existed, and that was quite a long time ago.
0: Oh yeah, yeah no, Hanks Hanks had the store up and running for many a year now. Uh, he was recently set up a new york comic-con uh, so if you uh, if you were if you were over in the uh the comic buying area of the con you might you might end up into it so but, uh
1: but uh paul when when you went was it called stone proof because they didn't have bullets then <laughs>
2: oh you are so funny <laughs>
1: that's my job <laughs> well, i try to make that my job
2: so that was, I, honestly, I didn't really care for Brooklyn College very much. The one year. That's why I only went there one year. But that was like the one pleasure of going there was going over to the comic store every once in a while. Yeah.
0: So it, it's, a, it's a damn good, it's a damn fine shot. And it's still up and running in the exact spot. And they've opened up a, a comic art gallery as well on the second floor. Uh, so, so very, very, very cool to see uh, Hank still, still kicking there.
2: That uh, is cool. Yep. This it...
0: one. Uh, no, no, go ahead.
2: I was going to say, there used to be a store on uh, Flatbush Avenue by Ditmas Avenue Mm -hmm. called My Friend's Bookstore, and somehow I got into a conversation with Dan DiDio and Jimmy Palmiati, and it turned out that all three of us used that store.
0: If that store was still in existence when I lived like three blocks away from that, I would have been there every day.
2: That was also like the first store when when VHS tapes first came into vogue, where they they were they were doing rentals out of that store
0: oh my god yeah that 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 might have been like right i'm trying to think of like where that was like position was like I, yeah no, i know exactly where that is because because i lived uh, between uh 21st but uh i mean i i'm sorry i'm sure i'm boring your listeners by even saying this but uh 21st between ditmas and newkirk was my old my old stomping ground so i used to be right around ditmas all the freaking time so that's uh it's funny that there used to be a comic shop there because you know, I, I wish there was.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, everyone, wherever you are, you wish there's a comic store. And uh, well, it may bore the listeners to find out that it's still cool for me to hear, you know, stuff about the areas where, where I used to haunt as well.
0: Hell yeah, hell yeah. And, right. and this uh, this comic came out right around that time uh, where I was getting into college, and uh, uh, shortly before this, I read Crisis on Infinite Earths for the first time. Um, and uh, uh, somewhere uh, uh, when it happened, I'm sure Murd sneezed, even though he didn't knew, know me yet. Uh, just, just, just even mentioning Crisis uh, probably just made it, because I think that happens every time anybody mentions Crisis.
4: <laughs> Another Shadow Demon gets his wings. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, I love it. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> like right around then, I was first, you know, really getting into like, you know, old, older DC comics. And I saw this Deadman issue with the uh, the headline, A Crisis in Hand. And it immediately drew me to it. And I, I had never read Deadman before. Um, I knew of the character just from showing up in other books, but I'd never read a, specifically a Deadman title. And uh, I figured that this would be appropriate as uh, Halloween just passed uh, for us to, uh, to touch on this on today's episode. And uh, the writer for this story was Steve Vance, a name I'm not familiar with at all. I uh, don't know if he's done anything else of note uh, in, in the comic book world, but Leonard Kirk is the penciler, and I'm a huge fan of his work, so happy to see him do anything here, and a cover by Jimmy Palmiotti as well, so, you know, all names that are familiar to everybody, and uh, the, the the story itself uh, is, uh, you know, we we're sort of just taken straight into the world of, of Dead Man, and it's immediately apparent to us that this is happening during Crisis on Infinite Earths, and um, which is interesting because, uh, you know, I, I rarely saw uh, titles acing themselves, you know, before the merging of the Earths, unless it was, you know, explicitly put that way. Um, like, you know, like a pre-crisis tale or something like that. And, and this one just, go has, just goes ahead and throws you right in, you know, here you are in a, in a pre-crisis world, right as Crisis on a Bit of the Earth is happening So that was pretty cool. Um, Dead Man winds up in his uh, trippy... Uh, uh, you know, psychedelic reality, and, and meets Ramakushna there, or at least he thinks it's Ramakrishna, and he tells him that uh, that he has a very important mission coming up, um, and that he should prep himself for it. And uh, while helping out a bunch of uh, civilians uh, who were, you know, dealing with the crisis, he comes across uh, the dying body of Barry Allen um, as he's being sent from, you know, from time period to time period. Uh, as he's about to face off against the anti-monitor in the uh, in anti-mo- anti anti uh, you know it, in the antimatter
2: universe. Quar- um, is it cord? Uh, cord. Yes. Cord, yes.
0: That's what I was looking for. Um and uh and yeah he winds up in the antimatter universe as well on cord and uh gets to you know experience the anti-monitor and all of its glory. Uh, Nice, nice iteration of the Anti Monitor that Leonard Kirk presents here. You know, very old school, very old fashioned, right on model. Um, absolutely, what I would expect from it. So that that made me pretty happy. And uh, Deadman tries to possess the Anti Monitor, and shockingly, it doesn't go so well. Um, but he is able to possess uh, Psycho Pirate at one point to help out the Flash as he's trying to take down uh, the Anti Monitor, and helps out a little bit uh, with taking out the. Uh, the the winged uh what wh- wh- what were the what were the troopers called again uh I always I always forget when it comes the
1: to weapons masters uh well the
4: the weaponers Weapon. uh, the the foot soldiers with the winged helmets are the thunderers which are like the, the agents of the weaponers got it and which of uh, you know the the anti monitor has taken as his uh, private uh personal guard strike force
0: excellent <laughs> do can count on you for that. <laughs> um. And uh, as he's dealing with the Thunderers, uh, Deadman gets a shot in the uh, in the in the head, literally, uh, and mm-hmm. suddenly starts reliving his, his timeline a little bit. So anybody who's unfamiliar with Deadman, like I was at the time, and his backstory, we get a solid you know three pages worth of uh, of backstory for Deadman, and then get to actually see him experience. Uh, the death of the Flash in Crisis. He tries to save him, but he's, he's you know, a minute too late, and there's Barry Allen, um, you know, disintegrating uh, in front of his eyes. However, he then winds up meeting the spirit of Barry Allen almost immediately after Barry dies, and uh, Dead Man takes this as his idea that, well, clearly I'm here to help him into the, into the realm of the dead, so he goes ahead and shows him into the light, and as he's leading Barry there, he gets hit by a, uh, by a shock as Darius Caldera, what name, uh, winds up coming out of the light and uh, winds up uh, starting to fight them. And, and he, knows, uh, he knows Darius from his previous life, uh, a dead man, uh, and, or at least when he was in Nanda Parbat, uh, after he had died, but, uh, but for a while he was you know, living there before none of the Parbat got destroyed. And uh, that's where he recognizes Darius from. Darius gets into a giant fight with Deadman and Barry Allen, and Barry is not used to being a spirit, so he doesn't have, uh, you know, all capabilities at this point. And uh, Darius kidnapped Barry Allen. It's his spirit. And held captive. And uh, winds up taking... uh, taking hold of him and then summoning uh you know all of his strength and, and he looks like he's going to take down dead man and uh, then we get continued next week on the very next page and that's when i realized oh hey this is gonna be a weekly series how about that and uh that's where we left off at the end of this first issue with uh, darius getting the upper hand and uh the preview for the next issue had told me that uh, this was going to just be going through the many deaths that have happened in the DC universe as issue two focuses upon the death of Jason Todd. That's another soul for him to capture.
2: So, I mean, I was a little confused with how he's jumping through time. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, I wasn't sure exactly what the mechanism of that was.
0: The mechanism of Barry Allen jumping through time or no, uh,
2: dead man dead, jumping through time.
0: Dead man. Yeah. Um, I I believe uh, in this story um, it's it's his uh, uh, connection to Ramakrishna that allows him to to jump through time. Um, Again, I haven't read the rest of this in a while, um, so it escapes me on exactly how that happened, but I know that at least the dead man that we're dealing with throughout this um, is mainly the one from Crisis, and then he just winds up jumping ahead to another another point after that. Uh, I'm trying to read ahead here in issue two to see if they actually explain it right away. Well,
1: couldn't, couldn't the spirit realm be attached to any time,
0: technically? Mm, that's a good point. That's a possibility. I'm just going to go with that.
2: I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just keep playing devil's advocate and say, but when he first connects with Barry Allen here, Barry Allen isn't in the spirit realm yet.
0: It, it, looking at issue two, uh, it, it was uh, Ramakrishna or someone else who uh, basically a, like summons a warp which then gets him further along in time to, to then the, the death of Jason Todd. Um, so he's, he's definitely using these, like, warps in time in order to get to where he's going.
2: Okay, so, I mean, it's it's somebody speci- specifically manipulating time as opposed to some unnamed phenomena. Correct. Yeah. Okay, and, and yeah, I'm, I'm just speculating that at the end of the series, it's probably all clear, but because this is issue one, maybe they're just, Kind of leaving that, you know, leaving that out there for you to learn as you go along.
0: Exactly, yeah, because because we haven't really gotten to the to the time travel portion yet, outside of Barry Allen, you know, doing his whole crisis thing. So that's that's more apparent by the time you know issue two rolls around and we're dealing with Jason Todd, and then I think issue three may have dealt with the death of Superman, if I remember correctly. I think uh, you. Yep. And then uh, forget what the fourth death was, uh, but uh, I'm thinking Hal Jordan. More than likely. That sounds about right. <laughs> so, yeah, just, no.
2: just as an aside, uh, I quickly looked up Steve Vance, and he's got some credits, not a lot, as a penciler and an inker. Mm-hmm. Uh, American Splendor, Big Book of Bad, Big Book of the 70s, Big Book of Vice. Those are the, the penciler ones. As a writer, he's listed on Bad Girls, Dead Man, Elseworld Superman, uh DC Comics presents Wonder Woman Adventures number 1 mm-hmm. Shazam the greatest stories ever told some more deadman issues not a lot doesn't he doesn't have a, a you know a very big resume uh but he does have as i said credits for as a as a penciler as a, an inker and as a writer got it
4: as okay. i recall he wrote a bunch of issues of the uh, adventures in the DC universe series which is like the um... Timverse take on uh, you know animated style take on a variety of uh, different DC characters other than Batman and Superman. Right.
2: Uh, nice.
0: Yeah. And and Murd was correct. Issue three dealt with Hal. Jo- uh, sorry, issue four dealt with Hal Jordan's death, and then issue five uh, was uh, Hal Jordan as a specter. Um, so that 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 concluded things there. So overall, I really enjoyed this uh, this series when it was coming out back in the day, um, and uh, I fe- I feel like this first issue really did hold up to me. Um, I I I'm glad that I that I picked it and it uh, makes me kind of just want to rewatch reread the whole damn thing because I'm a huge fan of time travel and uh, these you know important deaths although many of them have, been, have since been reversed in fact all of them have been reversed uh, now that I think about it literally every death in this has been reversed <laughs> since since 2001 happened. Yep. And is, isn't
2: there something at the end of this one where they talk about how they're not going to reverse the Barry Allen death?
0: Yep. And uh, well, I guess they changed their mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, it, it's still it's still some good uh, good solid uh, comics reading fun, and, and I I enjoy I enjoy a good mini series.
4: Yep, I, I picked this one up off the racks too, Ian. Although you know, part for the course for me, I didn't get around to reading it until about ten or so years later. <laughs> um, but uh, I actually I'm going to keep my remarks here to a minimum because uh, I rattled on. A Great length about uh, this first issue in uh, Murd's time bubble, the 26th time. Ah. But, uh, yeah, I agree with you that it's a solid read and it does hold up pretty well. The crisis angle you know, can't help but uh, appeal to me also. Uh, before the miniseries is over, there's also a connection to uh, Underworld Unleashed, another one of my favorite uh, DC events. Um Uh, I think the main reason this uh, miniseries existed was to uh, drive sales on an upcoming Dead Man ongoing, which lasted like nine issues and was also written by Steve Vance. I think it's one of the things that Paul mentioned a minute ago,
2: Mm
4: -hmm. Uh, Vance's other credits as a writer, Um, and it does draw pretty heavily on a 1980s Dead Man miniseries that was written by Andy Helfer, who also just happens to be the editor of this miniseries. So there's you know, a couple of ulterior motives involved, but it, it, it's fine. We'll, we'll put up with that as long as we get these interesting little uh, time-travel nuggets and uh, interactions with uh, uh, major flashpoints—no uh, pun intended—in uh, uh, DC history.
2: Uh, Ian, you, you, did you say it was a, a Palmiati cover?
0: Uh, He—it's he, it, according to DC uh, to DC's app. Uh, it was uh, covers by uh, Jimmy Palmiati, Kevin Nolan, Dave Stewart, Todd Klein, and Jose L. Garcia-Lopez. So I think there might have been a bunch of variants for this one.
2: Okay, because the, the one I'm looking at, at least, it's got you know, a kind of a close-up of Dead Man holding a small uh, skeletonized flash in his hand. Mm-hmm. It's
0: the Garcia-Lopez. And that's
2: Garcia-Lopez. That's yep. why I was a little confused they had said Palmiati.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: I love the cover. This cover, at least, I love. I don't have access to the other one. Uh, the interior art is is pretty sharp as well. The oh. Leonard Leonard Kirk interior art, uh, and I think the story's pretty cool. I mean, all around, I think this is a good issue. It it had me pretty much pulled in, uh, and it's got me curious to read the the remaining. Uh, what is it? Five issue series, so the remaining four, mm-hmm. and 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 that hook of it being, you know, the different deaths. Uh, is actually one that that i find compelling you know it doesn't feel like just a a big gimmick it feels like something that's actually interesting to me uh so i'm I'm pretty cool on this one uh it's one of the thoughts i had uh was early on there's the scene when he meets up with the Phantom stranger and the specter and i was thinking you know those are characters that i think people find intriguing but are somewhat confused by because I think they're almost intentionally confusing personally. Uh, And I think they're almost trying to distance dead man from them in that scene where they talk about, well, we're magic. And he's like, well, I'm not really magic, you know, that kind of thing. So it it almost feels like they're trying to say, you know, if if you're confused by them, don't worry about that. You could still read this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and I, and they may have also been uh, trying to throw in uh, characters that weren't really seen that much in crisis. Otherwise, uh, which, you know, that's that, that whenever you're doing side stories like that, or at least like, you know, like extra scenes in series, it's it's good not to deal with characters that had a lot to do with that that particular series.
2: Yeah, I think most of my dead man exposure has been in uh, Brave and the Bold. So that's-, it, that's kind of a little bit more of a lighthearted take on him for the most part. So I, I enjoyed this as almost like a different focus from what I'm used to as well.
3: Yeah. Ian, what I loved about your selection, because uh, I, I I never read this book. I read it 20 minutes ago, so it's it's very fresh for me. Um, is that a you picked a topic that I'm becoming well versed in thanks to Murd and Peter and all the episodes they've done on the Crisis tapes. So it was really exciting to see the Psycho Pirate to, to understand exactly what was going on with the Flash and and as you were as we were saying to to get a different perspective on that you know such a significant event in the history of the DC universe through the eyes of dead man who's sort of trying to figure out what's exactly exactly going on around him. Uh, it was a, really a thrill to experience the story from that perspective. Uh, this is a great pick. I think the art is fantastic. It has a, I, I don't, I, almost a bit of a silver age feel to it a little bit. I just think that the, that the art is beautifully done. Um, it just, I love stories that give you just a, a, a to kind of fill in some gaps on, on a massive event and bring it down to the level of one uh, character, who maybe wasn't directly involved in it, but is experiencing it from sort of their point of view. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Great pick by you, sir.
2: And, and I, it, it, I'm sorry to interrupt, uh, but it, it you know you said it shows it the one character, but it's also not you know where you're inundated with 80 crossovers and there you know each one of those go, gives you one character, and it's just like too much overload at once. You know, here we're getting it, you know, 15 years after the crisis. Uh, I, I, you know, look back on it, uh, it went through a different eye and I think that's kind of cool.
3: I also love the pages where they kind of take you, they give you a sort of a crash course on Dead Man's history um which I thought were beautifully rendered. This is again, I I love I realize this is part of a larger miniseries, but I just loved enjoy, – I enjoyed reading this. just sort of almost a one-and-done in a sense, even though it's really not. And uh, you don't see much of this anymore in comics, and I, I thought it was really well executed.
0: Yeah, and uh, and completely agree with you on that, That uh, especially with the uh, – you know with, with that quick origin of his. Like I said, I wasn't really – I was familiar with the character and what he did, but I didn't really know much about him. It's actual backstory before reading this back uh, back in 2001, and now here we go. So,
2: anybody have any other uh, any other comments on this one?
1: Uh, Merd, I had a quick question for you. It's related but tangentially. Um, go ahead, Bill. Being this is crisis, and it made me think about. Um, I know I've listened to many of. I'm not caught up. I'm behind on my listenings of the Crisis tapes, but I will catch up eventually. Um, Have you had any interest in any of the the Crisis buildup that's going on in the uh, current CW shows, or do you watch them?
4: Uh, The only one that I'm still watching at this point is The Flash, Uh, which is just as well, because that's the one that's going to be most closely tied into the upcoming Crisis event anyway. Uh, so I'll certainly watch all the tie-in episodes of all the different remaining Arrowverse shows.
1: Uh, well, because Arrow has been pretty tightened in, it went in because um, Ollie is being used as a uh, as a pawn or tool, or they're not quite sure yet of the monitor. I don't know if you've you, you might want to go back and watch the, the. It's it's tough to watch them. I watch them after the fact, streaming. And I fast forward through the future stuff. There's two t- t- timelines in the show. I fast forward through the future stuff, and I watch the current stuff. And basically, Ollie is being bounced around through different universes by the monitor to gain him certain items, oh, and he doesn't—he's not quite sure why. Like yeah. in, in the latest one, he went to Nanda Parbat to gain a scroll and he, to find out some information about the monitor specifically.
2: I'm very curious because I pretty much given up on all the cw shows because uh, it kind of started to feel like they were all very very repetitive don't try uh, to catch
1: up just start watching this season it's, w- it's still online
2: what i'm curious about is how are they depicting the monitor
1: he looks almost exactly the same yeah um, very well cast and this costume is very well designed really yeah. yes
2: it's one of the things I have to say that I, I have enjoyed about a lot of these shows, even though I've stopped watching them, is that they don't seem to shy away from their roots. You know, it doesn't have that, oh, it has to be grounded in the real world. Nobody would wear a costume like this. You know, I think it was the first time that we saw the killer shark on The Flash that I thought, okay, they've totally embraced this.
0: <laughs> they yeah. did not jump the shark.
2: Yeah, no, not at all. <laughs>
0: You know, it's so nice to be on a show with somebody who makes cornier jokes than I do.
2: <laughs> it's hard to find those.
0: <laughs> I
1: know. No, this is a great book. This is the first time that I've read this. Um, I've taken a an, an, an interest in DC that I didn't have, that, that I haven't had for quite a while. And one of the things has been with the JSA and and the Justice Society and uh, and also Batman and the Outsiders. And there's been a few like... Uh, um smaller DC miniseries that I picked up. So I may have to look for this now too when I'm digging and snorting, looking around for some DC books.
0: Well, for anybody who has the DC Universe app, that's how I went and reread my uh my back issue of this. They have the mm-hmm. entire miniseries on there. Um and uh and tons of other dead man material as well. So if you're familiar with the character or you're not and uh, you happen to be, you know, signed up to watch Titans or what have you? Uh, just go ahead and check out their uh, their comic book backlog, and uh, you'll be able to find it all there.
2: Cool. All right, uh, Ian, do you do you recall the rating system?
0: Uh, refresh my memory,
2: sir. Uh, we rate it uh, cover, interior art, story, and overall, and we give them grades A through F, just like a school grade.
0: Okay. Uh well the the cover I'd definitely give it a solid A. Um I now think are you working
2: with the Palmiotti cover or the Garcia Lopez?
0: Garcia Lopez yeah that's the one that's on my app as well. Um, okay. So, so I'll just go ahead and give that uh, a solid A there. Uh writing uh and and art I I give I give A's as well and uh, and story it's gonna straight up be an A yeah no that's this 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 issue is an overall A for me I, I'm. I'm very satisfied with uh, with with what it had to offer, and uh, it it holds up on reread, and that's important for me. Yeah, I'm
2: gonna I'm gonna pretty much agree with you. I think the cover is an A; it's beautiful. The interior art is uh, it's very easy to follow what's going on, which is no small task because this story is kind of going all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just everybody's drawn really really well in it i i it, it almost feels like a beautiful companion piece to the george perez art of crisis so i'm i'm go i'm with you on the a there uh and story-wise i think for first issue it gives you a lot of exposition to bring you up up to date on what's going on but it never feels like they're hitting you over the head with it so i'm going with an a there and i'm going to give the book an f overall oh no I, yeah i guess i'll give it an a <laughs> oh,
4: yes yep
2: yeah, I just figured I'd screw around there. <laughs> Anybody else who wants to... Uh...
3: I'll go. Uh, I, I concur wholeheartedly, Paul. I, A all along, all, all down the, the spectrum. I mean, I, I've read very little Dead Man. I, I know the basis of the character, but I didn't know what to expect Beyond the fact that, this, that, that since Ian picked it, I figured I was probably going to like it because Ian has excellent taste. Um, but that said, it, it actually exceeded my expectations. I... I Found myself within a few pages really digging this book where it wasn't just – I was just reading out of a sense of duty. I was really enjoying it, and I think it's an excellent package in terms of its execution. A cover, art is magnificent, and the story was captivating me, so an A all around.
2: I'm gonna, I'm gonna just comment on your, your comment that it never felt like a chore, and that is the one thing that, you know, because we read the books for the show. Every once in a while, one comes up that feels like a chore, oh, of and course. and that is so annoying. Because you know, those are the ones I just want to put a, put down and put away, but you know, we read them for the show, so you got to finish them. It yep. Doesn't happen often, but when it does, it's it's kind of irritating. Never
0: mind. <laughs> reminded of when for our introducing episodes of cgs we uh we read uh, a uh a mid-90s captain marvel issue that was uh not the best
2: <laughs> <laughs> captain marvel marvel captain marvel or well yeah it would be shazam if it was dc so that was a yeah, silly G- question G-
0: genus val uh, captain marvel uh pre the mm. uh you know pre uh, peter david okay yeah we
4: still baby nissie but uh it wasn't the best Fabian Nizieza and uh, any of us had ever seen.
2: At least it wasn't he wasn't legacy at the time.
4: Uh, he kind of was oh. in all the name.
2: Oh, okay. <laughs> all right, we'll, we'll we'll just pass on that one roll together. <laughs> uh, yeah, perfectly fine. Bill Merge, any any comments on the grading on this one?
4: Yeah, I, I think. I, I could go along with A's uh, all down the board. You know, The Garcia Lopez cover is, as you've said, Paul, gorgeous. Uh, the Leonard Kirk artwork is also quite satisfying. I liked what he did on the Peter David uh, Supergirl series, and I like what he's done here. Um, I, I agree uh, that uh, he draws a pretty mean anti-monitor. Uh, the story, I've, I certainly give an A to what happens in this first issue. I'm not sure I would give the same grade to the five-issue arc as a whole, but it's off to a great start in this first issue. And so that averages out to an A overall.
2: Did you read the rest of the series?
4: Ah, uh, yes, I did. It's been some it, it, like Ian. It's been some time since I've read the other four issues, but I have read them all.
0: And, and I will mention that Leonard Kirk is not the penciler on every issue. Right. Uh, it's one, three, and five, if I recall.
2: Correctly. Well, just just looking at at the page with you know the next issue blurb, it mentions uh, Jim apparel. Yep. yeah, mm-hmm. so yeah. I was gonna say I wouldn't complain about that.
0: Exactly. And then issue four uh, is uh, is somebody by the name of M.D. Bright. Uh, Not familiar with that guy at all, but uh, he's... uh, He's uh, he's
3: worked a lot with Christopher Priest. He's a fine artist. He was the artist on Quantum and Woody, for example.
0: Oh, okay. All right. Well, I know him now.
2: (laughs) Bill?
1: Uh, So, Paul, you know how I've been uh, harping on lately about House of X and Powers of X? Yes, I do. (laughs) (laughs) Which has not—I don't think any of those have actually aired yet. Uh, so my big beef with that was how they really just reused existing, you know, reused just straight-up artwork, existing panels, and just changed one at the end to give you a different perspective. I like this. This is the way things should be done. If you want to tell something, it, it because this tells retells something that happened in Crisis, but from a different point of view and a different perspective. And to me, I don't feel cheated or that it was repetitive, which is my big gripe about House of X, Power of X. Blah, 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 blah,
0: blah. I don't know what you guys think of it, but you know, I felt I, I am way more positive than you are. But I respectfully uh, am, understand your opinion. Why, thank you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed it up until like the very last um, the one of the last book of the. To, uh, i think it was powers of x with you know basically rehashing panels all from the other books but this is not what that is this this is something that happened it's just told differently i, I like it uh i'll give it a all around just so we can move along and we don't i don't keep harping on that subject like i have been a lot
2: <laughs> <laughs> all right who wants to go second
4: <laughs> I, I think i better have
2: all um, right, so we'll uh, go over to what? Do you, which of oh, Machine Man, right?
4: Ah, uh, yes, yes. Uh, no, it's, um, which is uh, somewhat sillier selection than what Chris has. Oh, my! This this selection is inspired. I can't wait to talk about it.
0: Yeah.
4: Well, it's your, yours is sublime, Chris. So we, I think if we need to finish up the C G S portion of the program with that. Uh, Thanks. My selection is uh, Machine Man, Volume One. This is uh, the, the 1978 volume, um, number 19, uh, which is the final issue of that series. You know, it started up in 1978, and uh, now the copyright date on the cover of uh, number 19 says 1979, but the indicia inside uh, tells us it's the February 1981 issue, which means that it actually hit stand sometime in late 1980, uh, so uh, sometime around the beginning of the 80s. Let's just put, put it that way. Um And uh, on the front cover, there's a little banner at the bottom, sort of a cheeky, snarky little thing that says, Complete your collection special, or guess what, Mag won't have a 20th issue. So that's – this this is during the uh, Jim Shooter reign at Marvel um, when he was uh, the editor-in-chief, and he tended to have a a little bit of a chip on his shoulder about uh, the cancellation of of certain series. And I think this is that uh, (laughs) – That aspect of his sense of humor showing through in that little banner on the bottom. But what it's telling us is this is the final issue of Machine Man's first ongoing series after being moved out of the pages of 2001 A Space Odyssey uh, in the uh, late 70s. Um, So by this point in the series run, i.e. the end point in the series run, it was being written by Tom DeFalco uh, with artwork by uh, legendary founding father of the Marvel Age, Steve Ditko. Uh, edited by Denny O'Neill, who was at Marvel at this time, as we'll also see when Chris talks about his pick, because it was also edited by Denny O'Neill. And uh, it finds uh, our uh, hero, Machine Man, the Living Robot, which uh, at one time had been the subtitle uh, shown on the cover of every issue, but they dropped that uh, a few issues before number 19. Um, He is uh, dealing with uh, the fallout of a battle from um, an earlier story arc uh, in which he battled uh, Madame Menace, And uh, received a damaging blow to his synthetic human face so that the um, left half of it is hideously melted and scarred, um, which is having a pretty serious psychological impact on him uh, because – As we know, Machine Man's uh, robotic alter ego, his human alter ego is Aaron Stack. His robotic alter ego is X-51, which means that he is the 51st in the X series of artificial humanoid prototypes. And X-1 through X-50 all went insane and had to be destroyed shortly after activation. Uh, The difference for X-51 was that his creator, Dr. Abel Stack, uh, gave him this artificial human face, named him Aaron Stack, and treated him like the the roboticist's own natural-born son. So that uh, kind of helped him ease into his artificial uh, human life and intelligence. Um, But now that that uh, human facade has been damaged, he's... uh suffering bouts of berserker rage, so that's kind of the subplot that uh, he's dealing with at the beginning of this issue. Um, So he goes to see – he talks to – we get to see some members of his supporting cast in this issue, some of which will never be seen again. But he confers with his psychiatrist and uh, human life coach, Dr. Peter Spaulding, and also his mechanic, Gears Garvin, a tough-talking technological product (laughs) who looks and sounds as if he might have been based at least in part on Tom DeFalco himself. Yeah, uh, he's – I think at some point in the few – Gears Garvin is one of those characters that outlived this volume of uh, Machine Man to appear elsewhere. I think at some point it was uh, theorized that he might actually be a mutant on the order of Forge of the X-Men in that his intuitive grasp of advanced technology, despite his total lack of schooling or training, um, somewhat mirrors Forge's own mutant power to do that with technology. But anyway, he's a, a real pro, and uh, as he says to Machine Man, yeah, I'm into engines, not body wake, but I'll do my best. he <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> yeah, he encounters the man wolf too oh <laughs> little cgsn joke there
0: what a revolting development
4: thanks yeah. he's not chomping a cigar but uh in my mind he is that cigar is part of my head for this issue uh so he sets about fixing uh machine man's face while machine man paces around and uh reflects on what's been going on in his life lately uh so the his face is fixed temporarily uh but after that's taken care of, a new fresh hell awaits him at work, uh, and work for Machine Man at this point in his career is at the Delmar Insurance Company, where we get to meet some of his coworkers, his boss, Byron Benjamin, office cut-up Eddie Harris, whose hilarious character foible is compulsive gambling and crippling <laughs> financial problems that accompany it. Funny stuff. And also the two office heartthrobs, wholesome, virtuous blonde Pamela Quinn and sardonic, sassy brunette uh, Maggie Jones, who introduces us for one panel to her brother, Brock Jones. She's like, hey, this is my brother Brock Jones. Hi, says Brock. And that's all we get. But uh, uh, Marvel fans of the period will remember that Brock Jones is the alter ego of uh, a character called the Torpedo, uh, whom uh, Marvel was attempting to leverage. Well done, Mert.
2: I, I did not make that connection. That's great.
4: Well, yeah, they didn't really give us much to go on here, Paul, but uh, I'm, I'm a little surprised they didn't uh, try to plug that character a little further, but uh, they just kind of tossed him in there for one panel and then tossed him right out again.
1: Now, that, that's the torpedo. I just, I just had a piece of popcorn. Jeez, uh, that was the that was the <laughs> torpedo that was in the Daredevil books, right? Uh, yeah, the one in the uh, the flying
4: suit with the turbines attached to yeah. it. He
2: priss- was eventually was killed tough. in Rom, wasn't he?
4: He was, yes. And the flying suit was passed on to a young lady named Mickey Musashi, who became a member of the New Warriors as Turbo. Hmm. So yeah, we don't see him in the costume in this comic. Act, he, he's just in that one panel. So shrug and move on. Um,
2: but we have well, hit upon a character who was killed and has not been resurrected.
4: Yeah, how about
2: that? <laughs> that's after to the list issue. That's, that's an event.
4: <laughs> it's, it is a Marvel rarity, to be sure. Um, but OK, what, what the Del Mar Insurance Company is up to in this final issue of Machine Man is uh, they're working on a prototype of a super embassy building, which they're trying to market to countries who have a, uh, a diplomatic presence in war-torn foreign countries. And it's got all kinds of uh, technological bells and whistles that are supposed to make it completely bomb-proof, invasion-proof, terrorist-proof. Um, And uh, Delmar has decided that the best way to exhibit this new creation of theirs to prospective buyers is to throw a masquerade party there on Halloween night. There's no way anything can go wrong with that plan. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, um, Aaron Stack, alias Machine Man, uh, is doing a preliminary inspection of the place when he notices a shady character whom he immediately identifies as a notorious gangster – because apparently he's memorized the faces of every notorious gangster in New York, uh, taking pictures. So he switches into his Machine Man persona and uh, trails the gangster back to his hideout uh, by negating gravity. Apparently Machine Man could do that. He could uh, float through the air at will and magnetizing his hand to the the gangster's car, uh, which takes him back to the the gang's hideout. And it's there that we're introduced to the character, uh, who is the main reason why I chose uh, this comic, Uh, for me to discuss on this episode of Back to the Bins. Um, Machine Man number 19 is the first appearance of the Marvel villain Jack-O-Lantern. In fact, this uh, story is entitled Jolted by Jack-O-Lantern. So uh, like uh, Dead Man Dead Again number one, chosen by Ian, um, this too is kind of appropriate to the recently concluded Halloween holiday because it's taking place around Halloween in the Marvel Universe 1980, and it also introduces Jack-O-Lantern. Um, who is uh, described on the first page as the most merciless mercenary of all. And uh, astute Marvel fans know that although we are not uh, given much about uh, uh, Jack-O-Lantern's secret ID or background in this story, uh, he tells us that he used to work for the government and uh, he uh, turned uh, to terror um, uh, for... uh, well, for the money, basically, uh, to turn a profit. Um, but eventually we learn that his real name is Jason Philip Masondale Jr., and he is destined to go on to become the second Hobgoblin. Yes. yes. Or, well, I guess there are a couple of other hoods who wore the costume in between time. A guy named Lefty Donovan comes
0: to mind, but he's the second <laughs> during Hobgoblin. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, like, technically he's like the third and a half. Like, uh, there's there's uh, been some retcons as to who wore the Hobgoblin suit first.
2: Are you giving Ned Leeds half? <laughs> Since they killed him and put the suit on him,
0: he gets like an eight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but
4: yeah, so he's like the the the, the second uh, long-term hobgoblin. Anyway, he eventually becomes the hobgoblin, and be- and I think he ended up being the hobgoblin longer than well, for a while, they're longer than anybody else. I think probably longer even than uh, the the original guy who was eventually revealed to be Roderick Kingsley did. Uh, but at this point, uh, we're just meeting him in his original costumed identity of jack-o'-lantern, and he has gathered this group of uh, local thugs and hired muscle, um, and he trains them mercilessly and uh, uh, psychologically abuses them. And uh, every time he speaks, it's in these big, jagged word balloons, so I guess we're supposed to assume he shouts everything that he says. <laughs> um, and his costume design is uh, kind of a it, – it's classic Ditko. It, it's its great looking. Um it's like a, a green-scaled chain-metal tunic uh, over a darker green bodysuit. He's got flared gloves and buccaneer boots, uh, a belt that's studded with these spherical gas grenades that are kind of like pumpkin bombs, but not really. Um, and, of course, he flies around on the awe-inspiring pogo platform. <laughs> <laughs> not quite as cool or as fast or maneuverable as a bat glider, but or a goblin glider, but it's bouncier. <laughs>
2: It's got right, that going the, for it.
4: Tactical advantages in close-up combat, I don't know, but uh, that, I
0: was, was going to say Murd. My, one of my favorite things about the design of the uh, of the costume is just how much bigger his left eye is than his right. Yes. Mm-hmm.
4: the Asymmetrical. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's a Ditko early '80s touch there, which was actually not retained. Uh, by uh, future artists who would draw jack-o'-lantern. And most of the other elements of Ditko's design were retained, but the head, yeah, the pumpkin head, the weird thing about it in this issue is it looks smaller than a normal adult human head would be, let alone <laughs> big enough to have a normal adult human head hidden under it. So, yeah, future artists would expand the pumpkin quite a bit and also make the eyes, you know, the same size.
2: Was, was the jack-o'-lantern taken out or killed at one point in Civil War, or... Oh, what am I... If I remember correctly, after he took on the uh, role of Hobgoblin, someone else took over his role, and okay. that I think that character was killed off.
4: Right. Uh, yeah, the second Jack o Lantern was named Stephen Levins. <laughs>
0: uh,
4: he first appeared in um, Grunewald's Captain America run as a member of the Red Skull's skeleton crew. Um, but yeah, you're right. He was the one that was killed. And also in between there, there was another person, uh, a cousin of Quentin Beck, a.k.a. Mysterio, uh, who... Uh, uh, adopted the identity and gimmickry of jack-o'-lantern but uh, used special effects gimmickry that she inherited from her late cousin mysterio to make her version of jack-o'-lantern appear more uh, uh, supernatural and
2: i bow before your encyclopedic knowledge <laughs> would she All be we called... every
1: week i happily would... accept your veneration would she be called jackie lantern
4: uh, no, <laughs> oh my god it, no, nobody realized she was female at that point and, and besides which, she was collaborating with uh, Daniel Burkhart, who was another special effects master who had trained under Quentin Beck and had also assumed he so the editing of Mysterio.
2: Was that the one? I, I'm, I'm going to just and I, again, I just I don't even try to keep up with you here. But is Danny Burkhart the one who, who uh, was in Spider-Man where he'd pull the mask off and there was no head underneath it? Like that uh-huh. was, that was one of his gimmicks. He had the he had the basically a mask that made his head invisible, mm-hmm. and he had that underneath the fishbowl helmet. Do you remember that?
4: I don't remember that. But it sounds like something he would do.
2: And I'm thinking that was the second Mysterio and that was Danny Burkhardt. Mm-hmm. But I could be mistaken. Yep. I, I don't think you are, Paul. I think that is the way that breaks down.
0: I appreciate how many uh, Spider-Man villains have cousins that are also villains.
2: <laughs> it's it, In Spider-Man's world, and, and this is one of my criticisms, although I love it, But in Spider-Man's world, it's a very, very small world because everyone is a supervillain or a superhero.
4: Oh, yeah, exactly. Everybody within three degrees of separation of Peter Parker has been a hero or a villain at some time. (laughs) Yep. You you sell him a pair of shoes and within three
2: months you're (laughs) going to be wearing a costume. (laughs) (laughs) And that was was actually one of the few criticisms I had of Homecoming was the fact that, you know, the Vulture ended up being the father of uh, Liz Allen. It's just, you know, it just makes the world too small.
4: Yeah, but it's it's a classic Marvel gimmick, though.
0: Gaze upon the mastery of the shoe.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sorry to keep interrupting your uh, your telling of this tale.
0: No, it's quite all right, Paul.
4: This is all part of the fun of this format. We can you know, just jump in with a fun little addenda anytime we want. Um, All right, so anyway, Machine Man encounters Jack-O-Lantern at his hideout, which is uh, an abandoned rec center, and he actually falls through the roof because he's 850 pounds, and this is just like two pages after we're told that he can negate gravity, and apparently when he alights on this roof, he forgets that fact and uh, crashes through the – and then as he lands with a thud on the floor below, he thinks to himself, oh, no time to negate gravity. I think that was probably stuck in there after the fact by a uh, writer or editor who realized, oh, yeah, that's right. This plot point doesn't make sense because Machine Man has this power. But anyway, that precipitates uh, literally and figuratively uh, the, the battle between Machine Man and uh, Jack O'Lantern, which ends with Jack Lantern and his gang getting away. Um, but then in the course of that battle, Machine Man's face, his synthetic human face is damaged again. And he feels the Berserker rage welling up in him immediately, but he manages to compose himself. And uh, he um, gets out into the fresh air, does some more introspection. Um, but he's got a duty to perform. Uh, Del Mar Insurance Company needs him to go to the opening of the Super Embassy and uh, just be on hand to make sure nothing goes wrong. All of his coworkers are going to be there in Halloween costumes. So he buys a Superman mask from a kid on the street trick-or-treat and uh, puts it on over his bare robotic machine man face. And at some point, of course, someone yanks the Superman mask off and we get the big reveal, and everybody thinks that this is you know, a part of his costume. Haha. Uh-huh. Then uh, Jack O'Lantern and his gang arrive and uh, proceed to sabotage uh, uh, the uh, super embassy prototype. The story doesn't really make it clear how they're going to be monetizing this scheme of theirs. I assume it's going to be either... A, they're doing this uh, because they've been hired by one of Delmar's competitors who want Delmar's big int- uh, uh, upfront to fail. Or B, they're doing this to prove that the Super Embassy can be cracked and they'll sell the secret of how they did it to any terrorist cell that wants to uh, do the same thing to a Super Embassy that opens in another country. But anyway, the point is uh, Jack O'Lantern and his gang successfully break in. ...and start creating havoc. Machine Man is able to stop them. He mind-melds with the central computer... ...and shuts all the malfunctioning equipment down. And then he uh, gets in, wades into battle... ...and uh, battles off Jack-O-Lantern and his goons. Um, and he ends up uh, successfully knocking Jack out... ...by enveloping him in a highly charged magnetic field... ...as uh, one of Jack's concussion grenades goes off in his hand. His armor is enough to protect Jack from lethal harm... ...but he is at least knocked unconscious... And machine man strides away as he gets you know, the, the hairy eyeball from the human ingrates who fear and distrust him and uh, don't appreciate that he just saved all of their lives.
2: Apparently, he, including he, Albert Einstein. What
4: about Albert Einstein?
2: He's. He it looks to be one. He looks to be one of the humans who's given him the hairy eyeball there.
4: Oh, oh yeah yeah I see what you
2: mean. <laughs> just just a. I don't know. When I saw it, I was like, wait, what the hell is that? Sorry.
4: Yeah, either him or a Halloween uh, simulation. Um, so uh, Machine Man pays one last visit to Gears Garvin uh, to to get a tune up to his brain, which apparently was his, the psychological problems he's been having. And then he once again walks out into the night air. He, he does an awful, very introspective robot. This guy. Uh, and uh, he mutters to himself, uh, "I intend to be around for a long, long time." An ironic last words for the. Last page of the last issue of his series. Uh, But he does mention uh, to uh, Garvin and Dr. Spaulding before he does this that he's going to take a leave of absence from Del Mar Insurance Company, and I'm pretty sure that he never did go back, which is why those supporting cast members like uh, Eddie Harris, the gambler, and Pam Quinn, uh, the uh, old-fashioned, long-suffering Marvel love interest, uh, are – I don't think they were ever seen again. But anyway, there you go, Machine Man, uh, the final issue of that series, first appearance of Jack Lantern, all of it underneath a cover, lest I forget, uh, drawn by, of all people, Frank Miller with inks by Terry Austin. So somewhere there exists original Frank Miller artwork of Machine Man battling a guy with a pumpkin on his head.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Actually, he's making a face at him. He's like... Neer neener, neater.
2: Yeah, it's it's drawn to be much sillier than the story really is. Yeah, it almost looks like this should have the assistant editor's stamp on it.
1: <laughs> oh my God, we had the precursor to Fat Thor on this cover. Frank Miller yeah. was a visionary.
0: And it's it's also a completely different Jack O' Lantern costume. Like it not yeah. not anywhere near what it looks like on the inside.
2: It's Dormammu.
0: Oh God, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> This color
1: scheme, the purple with the orange, yeah. Uh, and, and we have a Batman and Superman way back
4: there in the back. Yep. And yeah, we've got the uh, overweight invisible woman, we've got scrawny Hulk, a lot of uh, off-model... Uh... Oh, the lady over here, she's a silver surfer, I didn't see the surfboard until huh, now. I didn't oh, either. Me neither, yeah, I thought she was just some, I don't know, re- uh, the CDC employee or something, but no, yeah. I didn't see the <laughs> surfboard either, great cat. <laughs>
3: All right, I got to – Murd. I can't thank you enough for choosing this. Um, as as many you know, you all know, I, I love Ditko's work. I've never I've never read any of his Machine Man stuff. I knew he took over after Kirby left the book, um, but reading this story, and I've totally forgotten he introduced Jack o' Lantern. Um, so on many levels, Murd, I really enjoyed your selection. Um, but okay, I have to read a thought balloon. Because when I read this thought, I stood up in my chair and did a touchdown pose. (laughs) So – and by the way, I have to comment. Marvel Unlimited, to navigate this, is such crap. Uh, Can they make the site more difficult to find things and even just to look at a damn book? Like it – maybe it's just me because I'm primitive, but ugh.
0: Oh, no. The the, the actual browsing of uh, of series could be way, way easier. Oh, no. Great Ian, way. my God! So
3: I'm not totally crazy then when I say that. It's
0: holy mackerel.
3: So, all right, what? I don't know what page I'm on, but it's the first couple of pages. So he's with he's with his, his cohorts at the insurance company, and he, you know, he's infatuated with the blonde girl. No, I'm sorry, he's infatuated with the brunette girl, and the blonde girl's infatuated with him. And she's thinking, um, no, I'm sorry, Aaron's thinking, Pam, Pam. You affect my circuitry in weird and wonderful ways, but you need a man of flesh, not metal. And then she thinks, Aaron, can't you see that I love you? And I stood up, arms in a touchdown gesture, just shouting with glee because I felt like I was back reading like Spider-Man from the early Silver Age by Leon Ditko because <laughs> um, it's this, that, that same you know template essentially, um, right down – like like. <clears throat> The, the gambling guy, who I thought was hilarious, because like they're making light of this guy. Obviously, he's a terrible addiction. He's probably destroying his entire life. Uh, but he's almost like like this dark version of Foggy Nelson, with like yes. the bow tie and this and that. Um, but what I also found really fascinating was uh, apparently there's there's moments in the story where based on uh, damage he received in an earlier battle, that he's he's losing control of his passions, so to speak, and he's like getting to like these berserker rages. And I'm wondering if that's Ditko. Imposing through the plot his sort of views on life, like he, like did merge. Notice that several times, Aaron's like, I have to I have to control myself. Like I'm losing control of like my my balance, so to speak, and and, and he's like trying to keep his emotions in check. Mm-hmm. And I'm i just I was just wondering if that was Defalco or if that was Ditko, kind of through the plot, saying, okay, I want him to be going through this ordeal because that seems to fall in line with when you read about Steve Ditko's philosophy. Objectivism and so forth, and the sort of the black and white view of the world, and etc. You know, I, I'm wondering if that if that was kind of seeping in there. That, that's just a wild guess on my part, but I just kind of fascinating that that was an aspect of sort of the machines, man, character arc uh, in this story.
4: Oh. Well, I think there's an excellent chance that uh, Ditko was uh, asserting himself uh, uh, through this this arc, because uh, he, he was definitely uh, being uh, he was kind of being a martinet uh, in in uh, As artist in this series and uh, trying to make his creative voice heard Um, because DeFalco, I don't even remember where I read this, but uh, he reminisced in an interview I read with him a long time ago. that when he came on as writer of Machine Man towards the end, uh, Ditko called him up and uh, engaged him in a like an an hour long debate, like like demanding DeFalco uh, expound and defend his definition of heroism before Ditko would consent to work with him as writer on this Machine Man series. So I think there is every possibility, Chris, that uh, what you say is true and that Ditko was uh, finding a way to make his own thoughts on the nature of heroism and humanity through his work on this Machine Man story.
2: I got the impression that that was going to be a continuing subplot, and because the series was being canceled, they just cleaned it all up in that last page. You know, and, and I think I thought that was also, you know, the, the, the thought behind that last line where he said, I intend to be around for a long, long time. Just, mm-hmm. you know, to let you know the character is still going to exist and that they're going to make use of it in the Marvel Universe, although they really haven't done a heck of a lot with him when you think uh, about this. Uh, 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 actually, I was going to get to this.
1: You know, he's currently in the current Iron Man book. Ah.
2: No, I did not. I don't read anything that's current, so that would explain yes, this. he
1: has been, but his portrayal has been kind of, uh, I don't know, it's almost like they've made the Iron Man book its own little, like Marvel's nothing but a bunch of little side universes. Each book is its own little world that doesn't really tie into the others because Tony Stark has figured out that he's a rebooted human. He's not the original human he was. His body was recreated. Yeah. That's and
0: that's from a previous, uh, uh, volume, uh, of, uh, right. of, and so building off uh, of that. Definitely.
1: And then Aaron stack is basically pining after Jocasta. Jocasta wants to become a human. And now there's a, somehow Ultron has merged himself with Hank Pym. So he's like Ultron Pym. Mm-hmm. And, uh, through a accident that just happened, Tony is now bonded with his armor um, but uh, and then actually, Aaron, uh, uh, well, Machine Man came to his re- rescue, and well, not rescue yet. It's still an ongoing series. But yeah, that's that's the current where he's. I didn't really like the way he's been portrayed. He's being portrayed more like a a whiny twenty-something.
0: So he's being portrayed like his next wave equivalent. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was thinking. Mm yeah uh, which 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 frankly is is has been the case with many of the characters that were in next wave since that ish, since that series was published is that uh slowly but surely their mainstream uh you know marvel iterations have taken on the personalities of that next wave series even though that was just supposed to be a side series uh like definitely boom boom is 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 way more like she ever was in 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 next wave than she is now, and and Machine Man when he was appearing in Captain Marvel's series was definitely more like the next wave version. So I think they're they're adopting that personality. Ah, so it's been a long time since I've read that. Yep. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, so he he is still active in the current Marvel universe. All right. So what do I know?
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know lots of things. Not about current about the current Marvel universe. I know. Hey, I only precious know Iron little. Man.
1: I only know Iron Man and the Avengers. That's all, and the Fantastic Four. That's the only three current books I buy.
0: Immortal Hulk and uh, and Doctor Strange. And I'm still way behind on Avengers and Iron Man and Fantastic Four. So I got to catch myself up on those.
2: Uh, you could always start a time bubble podcast.
0: Uh, nah, I think somebody has that covered. Oh, okay. Oh, time <laughs> <laughs> This
2: <that's, that's laughs> are the time names. <laughs> Uh what what did you all think about the Steve Ditko art in this one? Uh
0: you know, you know what? I I appreciate it for what it is and it is definitely a step through time like uh like Chris was saying. Like it does bring you back to the Silver yep. Age, mm. which I appreciate. Um however, it is a it is a bit inconsistent at times. Um at times it even reminds me more of Kirby's work than it does of Ditko's, uh especially in the faces. But but then there then there'll be random faces that are just very stiff and lifeless, and that that's been one of my problems with Ditko, uh, you know, since I started reading him. It's it's not necessarily a a, a negative for, for those who you know love and appreciate him. It's just I've he's never been the best with faces for me, um, and, and it's and it becomes apparent on, on certain pages here uh, that, that that continues to be the issue in the 80s.
3: Well, what I love about Ditko's faces, although I, I can see where you're coming from when looking at the, at a book from this period is that he, he what one of the things the hallmarks of his greatness as an artist is that he draws mundane people hmm. ugly people yeah because let's face it the average human being really isn't that attractive so um and he, he always captured that so well i think in the silver age that was such so draw dropping because you, you i mean you're contrasting that with you know dc looks like you know Handsome and and, and attractive, and, and it's all John Q. Public, white fence, and the whole that whole you know postcard perfect world. Mm-hmm. And you go to the, the Spider Man, and you know people. Well, I, I know that guy. Like I've seen that person on the street. Um, and that was so gripping, and still is from when I look at those stories. I mean, when you see Ditko again, because art styles change, sensibilities, taste change. You get to the you know this, this is the really the beginning of the Copper Age. Mm-hmm. I can see where his art style w- would kind of stick out, where that may- maybe some readers wouldn't really take to, right? Because it's not like anything else that, that's that's you're seeing at this point I- in Marvel comics, so I can understand that.
0: The, the other thing is uh, that I really appreciate is that when he puts on that Superman mask, uh, he's just basically Simon Williams, like he he looks <laughs> he looks exactly like Wonder Man. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> which, which is which is just like all right fine. Why, why did they just say he's just dressed a uh, dressing as uh, dressing up as Wonder Man for for Halloween? Why the hell not?
1: Oh, another side note. They also mer- uh, Ultron also merged Simon Williams and the Vision into one being too.
0: Of course he did. Yes. <laughs> oh, boy.
2: <laughs> well, just just to. Just to totally try and ignore that point, and uh, and talk a little bit about the art. I when I look at Ditko in the '60s, uh, the two things that really stand out. Uh, well, three things, because I, I I think he's he's a masterful storyteller. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but just looking at individual images and setting the storytelling aside. Uh, what I thought he really did well in the sixties was to create outrageous fantasy worlds, which he did in Dr. Strange and, uh, to make real solid use of shadow and light, uh, which I thought he did a lot in Spider-Man. Uh, and I don't see a lot of any of that here. Uh, so I, I find it to be almost like a shell of the Ditko that I love so much it's that's like this, good, this that's
3: a really good point paul it's a really good point
2: you know there's some of it here you know you you, you could see you know there's a little bit of it i'm, I'm just i'm looking at uh what was the page there was a there's one pa- page in particular where there was like a battle uh yeah the, well actually the page when when uh machine man falls to the roof like i see some good use of shadow in that page uh but otherwise, I'm not seeing a lot. And I do find it amusing that they attack him with, like, old-fashioned gym equipment, like clubs and stuff. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and the storytelling, I still think, is top-notch. And some of the individual images I'm happy with, but I don't think it has the same cohesive uh, just comfort to the eye that I felt in the 60s. So, uh, you know, I've in in the past, I've blamed a lot of my – liking of the later Ditko on Inker's fear of putting their own stamp on his artwork, but he inked himself here, so I really can't do that. So, you know, it's not that it's, I think it's bad. I don't. But I, it's just not at the level of the Ditko that I love so much.
0: That's fair. Yeah.
4: Yeah, I'll agree that this is a uh, Ditko uh, past uh, the peak of his powers.
0: Um...
4: And yeah, you know, I I see Ian's point about uh Ditko and faces. I'll agree he's not the best at them. Uh the faces here are kind of crude, uh, but expressive. You know, they 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 get the emotion across pretty well, so that, that plays to Paul's point about the storytelling. Um and as far as uh, the similarity to to Kirby faces, another Ian point that Ian made, um that's probably not entirely accidental because uh Ditko is following Kirby's act. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kirby created character here on this series. Good point. Um but uh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, – this is just Ditko of the early 80s. It's not not exactly my cup of tea, but uh, also important to note it wasn't really much the cup of tea of uh, fans of the period because uh, a lot of them were kind of down on Ditko and even Kirby. You know, and, and, and as Chris has pointed out in several of his historical retrospectives about Marvel. Uh, in the Bronze Age and slightly afterwards, um, Kirby basically packed up and left Marvel because you know, he wasn't being taken seriously by Marvel editors. People at Marvel thought he was—they they called him Hack Kirby and, and uh,
3: Jack the Hack. Yep.
4: Yeah. So yeah, the, 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 his style and Ditko's style were kind of uh, off trend at the beginning of the 80s. So this you know, one of the letter writers and uh, in, in the, the uh, on the letters column of this issue, say, uh, you know, that the artwork is, uh, let's see, Machine Man stinks. The artwork is terrible, and the plots are infantile garbage. So, yeah, that's, uh, I, I think that that's, that's harsh. Yeah, yeah he, he went on to say that he only buys the comic for the pleasure of burning it.
0: Oh my God. Okay. Yep. So yeah, it's
3: it's not exactly. Boy, I really miss customers like that. <laughs> that's not what of the, the early '80s was clamoring for.
0: T- today today Murd, we call that a youtuber but that's
2: uh <laughs> that's that's i i think that's un unfairly uh harsh it's not even you know well he's just being you know uh, honest I, I i think it's it's like uh purposely just being nasty
0: yeah And 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 you know what? How hard is it to just not pick up a damn book if you don't like it? Like it's it's plain and simple. If if you if you pick up a couple issues and it's not your cup of tea, then don't pick it up anymore. You know, there's no reason to go out of your way to 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 yell and scream and and be angry over it. It's like okay, clearly somebody at Marvel isn't isn't on your wavelength. Like move on and 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 go ahead and read something you actually like. It dingbat.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I feel like you're speaking right to me, because <laughs> that's exactly what I did. <laughs> Good on you, Bill.
2: All right, so are uh, we ready to rate this one? You bet.
4: Okay. Um, cover, uh, it's Miller... Uh, but I'm not that big a fan of Miller in general, and as we've pointed out before, he's not really doing any justice to Ditko's character design for Jack, for, for example. I'm not giving it any better than a B. Uh, the Ditko interiors themselves, again, I, I really like his ca- costume design for Jack-o'-lantern, but it's it's not the best Ditko any of us have ever seen, so I'm just going to give that a B, too. The story, uh, it's got a number of plot holes. It's yeah, De Falco is one of my least favorite writers, actually. <laughs> If it weren't for the introduction of Jack O' Lantern, I'd probably give this a D. As it is, I'll give it a C for story. So I think overall, it, it's going to amount to like a, a B minus at best.
1: Well, yeah. Paul, this, Paul, this has to be your favorite co- cover because it's got lots of that thing you love in the cover.
2: Well, Terry Austin was a fan of using the zipitone, and it's funny because when you read interviews with the him, he, com- I meant he complained more like, about it. Like oh, the white, the white, the the stark white background. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I don't know. There's enough going, there's enough action in the foreground and enough people in the background that the, the white background doesn't really bother me all that much in this particular one. Uh, but I, I, like Adam, I, I have a problem with the fact that he totally just disregarded the character design and, and drew jack o the way he felt like drawing him. Uh, I don't really get that. I don't I don't understand that at all.
1: Uh, I wonder if the whole nina 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 is just that, disregarding the whole character design, going like.
2: I'm, I'm wondering if it's, it's a, if it's a show of disrespect for for Ditko by fellow creators, not only readers, and that that would really bother me even more.
0: Well, Paul, what I think it probably was, and what's probably closer to the truth, at least this is what I'm hoping, is that uh, he wasn't actually told what the character design was because that would happen all the damn time and still even happens today sometimes in comics where you're told that a that a character is going to appear on a cover and you draw them and then before you know it you've drawn the wrong costume and then you open up the page and it has a completely different costume on the side
2: that is um, possible and that would be the most kind way to, to look at this so yeah. one we'll we'll go we'll run with that cuz we don't like to necessarily think bad things about people uh i i would say the cover is Except for the, the lack of character design, you know, of using the character model. I don't mind the way it's drawn at all. I think it's pretty solid, but I don't think it's, uh, you know, I don't think it's iconic by any stretch. So I'm, I'm pretty much in agreement with Murd that it's a B. Uh, the interior art, I, I'm giving it a B, but I think that's more out of nostalgia for Ditko than it is actually looking at the artwork within this particular book. I think there's enough problems with it and enough simplistically drawn things that it it could get a lower grade but i'm just loath to give ditko anything lower than a b uh i the, i guess the area where i disagree with you is I'm, I'm a little bit more i enjoyed the story a little bit more despite some of the uh the, the plot holes and and some of the just you know stereotypical characters that they use here and i think some of that might be some nostalgia just You know, as as Chris pointed out earlier about like the line that comes sounds like it comes right out of a nineteen sixties Stan Lee uh, written story. Uh, So I'm I'm gonna go I'm going B's all around here, and I'm just gonna give the book a B. Um,
3: I'm again, Paul. I I echo your sentiments for this book as well. It's straight B. Um, uh, I'm a huge Miller fan, but you know the cover. I, I didn't find particularly captivating. I mean it was certainly solid. I've always enjoyed the, the jack o design, and one of, the, one of the joys for this selection – again, where I'm so glad you picked it – was that I had totally forgotten that he was introduced in Machine Man and designed by Ditko. So that that's – it was a thrill to see that. Um, I, I just find this a very serviceable book in the sense that it's very solid, uh, and the story kept my interest. But like Paul was saying, a lot of that was really rooted in my nostalgia and love for Ditko's work. And I'm, again, I'm glad Marvel, you know, was printing some of his work. I mean, he they, they always had a difficult relationship with Marvel throughout the years, but they're printing some of his work in, this, in the very late 70s or early 80s. I think it comes back one more time in the 90s to, to create Speedball, if I remember correctly. Um, but it, this is this is, I mean, it, it's it's a forgettable story. It's not a book I would I would return to and read over and over again as I, I'm, I'm with other stories, but really fun. Uh, I love the history, the Jack Jackalene character. and It's just uh, any chance t- to look at Ditko's work well, from whatever period. I mean, this is not like like some of you fellows were saying. This is not my favorite period of Steve Ditko's work, and I agree with you, Paul. You really miss the atmospherics and and, and the use of, of of darks that you see in some of some of some, you know his classic work from the Silver Age and stuff he was doing at Warren Publishing and and, and, and so forth, um, Charlton, et cetera, But uh, Mur, this I, I really enjoy just kind of taking this trip down sort of like semi-amnesia lane. So thanks, man. Glad you enjoyed it. Please. Yep.
0: All right. I, I, I go ahead and uh, give the cover uh, a solid key finest. Uh, it's far from my favorite Frank Miller cover I've ever seen. Uh, the Terry Austin inks, the cross-hatching specifically on that Silver Surfer woman. Uh, I just kind of hate it. It's, it's just... It, it, it almost makes it look see through uh, in, in the way that it that it's that it's done. I just really really don't like it at all. I Do appreciate that, that there's sort of like an R. Crumb esque uh, you know mad uh, personality to the uh, costumes on it and the fact that he fit both Batman and Superman and on in, in the background is is funny enough. But uh, yeah, it's about a B minus for me. Uh, art is also going to be a B a B minus. Uh, my my major problem with it more than anything else is the lack of depth uh, in in any of the fight scenes. Like it almost it almost looks like everything like the perspective is off. And I know that, 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 that that's something that Ditko works with you know regularly is that his say style can be a bit flatter at times. Um, but a, as as has been mentioned by by others already, um, just because of the era he was working in and what have you, I would have loved to have seen more depth, uh, to the art. And I just really didn't get that. So B minus for me on that. Uh, the story uh, to uh, harken back to the days of the amazing Spider-Cast, the long, long lost uh, Spider-Man podcast that I used to guest on occasionally. DeFalco. That's <laughs> that, that was a, 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 something we would say on a regular basis. And this is, this is some of the weakest DeFalco I've read. <laughs> I, I would give the – I'm being generous with a C on the writing. Um, it, it's Stan-like, and I understand what he was going for with that pastiche, but just overall it just feels like he's he's mimicking more than he's actually writing. I,
3: I have to think. step in for a minute because I always have to defend Tom DeFalco because um, we always had these friendly disagreements. I, I think this is early in his career – number one so I can see why he's doing the mimicry here mm-hmm. uh, if you get later on to defalco's work and, and it's uneven I, like I, I don't totally disagree with Murd, I don't like everything he's done I do think he did some some pretty solid work on, on amazing spider-man I loved his spider girl comic that he did
0: the comic is one of my favorites as well I completely agree.
3: yeah but uh you know this is I'm assuming this is early in his career so it's it's yeah it's no, it's nothing that you know is gonna make it Tom defalco you know greatest hits compilation
0: a hundred percent
4: um, the letters page to Machine Man number 19 contains one of the kindest critiques of DeFalco's writing I've ever read. Tom's imagination surpasses his
3: script writing. Of the
2: <laughs>
3: Damn, the Machine Man letter-, letter writers were harsh. Oh my god. mackerel. <laughs>
1: Is that a polite way of saying his reach exceeds his grasp? Sounds like it.
4: Basically, yeah. He had good ideas, but lacked the skill
0: to execute them. And overall, just a B minus. So, so, solid B minus for me.
1: Uh, oh, I guess I'm the last one.
2: Uh,
1: hey. uh, I mm, ah, the cover.
2: Ah. Let it go, Billy. Don't try. Don't worry about trying to, to not insult us.
1: <laughs> well, no. I mean, I no. I actually, I I like. I mean, it's it's Miller and Austin. It's not a bad pairing, but. Uh, You know, for once, Paul, I'm I'm in agreement. I wish there was a little bit more on this cover in the background the white, although the white does make the the various costumes stand out a little better. But it's still nothing better than than a B or a C minus cover wise. The interior art. I I like Steve Ditko, but I know this is sacrilege. I like him more in the Doctor Strange universe than I do the Spider-Man universe. That's just my preference.
2: It's not sacrilege. I think that's a fair opinion. I don't necessarily share it, but it's a fair opinion.
1: Right. So, for me, the art—it's eh, like a C plus, B minus. It's you know, uh, and the story. Yeah. You, you know, I'm wondering if this whole super embassy thing, being as this would be the 80s, was this influenced by real world events i.e. Well, this, uh, example the Iranian embassy
2: this would be close in time to after, after the that. hostages you know, were released
3: in, in, actually that happened 40 mm-hmm. years ago as we're recording this today in yeah. 1979 mm-hmm. so yeah that's it's kind of odd that we were covering
1: this book that mentioned something like this and that was out back then so uh, story-wise, I'm still gonna just give it a C. So for me, it's 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 a C book, C for comic book. Oh, there you go. And unfortunately, gentlemen, I need to step away and because I have to be up very early in the morning. But uh, I I hate to critique and run. But, <laughs> no. Uh, 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 Paul, should I leave? Stay connected. Just mute because I'm not sure if I disconnect. But that way well, I I be a think a full it will backup it, of the recording.
2: I think just for the purposes of a backup, if you could do that, I'd appreciate it.
1: I will do that. I will let it run. And then when you close out the call, it should close. All
2: right. Thanks for making time to get on at all. I appreciate it. And uh, I'll talk to you soon, buddy.
1: Take Alrighty, care, sir. I'll, I'll see all you guys later. Look forward to seeing you all some t- sometime in the future again or for the first time. <laughs>
0: Sounds good. Take care, man. Good talking with you again.
1: You too.
3: All right. See you guys later. Bye. Good
0: night.
2: All right, Chris, you're up.
3: Okay, so I chose uh, The Hands of Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu, issue 114. Copyright uh, 1982. Uh, The creative team is the writers. Is it Doug Monk? I
2: always thought it was Mensch. Or munch <laughs> I,
0: I i wanted to be munch uh, i mean i wanted to be mensch just because i like saying mensch uh,
4: yeah i think monk is how we uh, discovered i mean for, for the longest time paul i thought it was mensch too but uh i i, I think we learned in the early days of cgs that it fact monk because
3: it long before i was involved in the show the fellas interviewed him
2: oh okay well then i think we got to go with that as your definitive uh pronunciation uh,
3: always a favorite writer of mine uh the the what besides Doug Monk's script? The other main reason I chose this book is that it's pencil and inked by the late great Gene Day, uh, who died at the age of 31 in 1982. Wow. So the same year this book came out. Uh, Christy Scheel colors, Jim Novak letterer. If you're an, if you're an 80s Marvel fan, all these names should be familiar. Uh, Ralph Macchio is the editor, and of course Jim Shooter, as Bird mentioned earlier, this is his era as the editor in chief. Now. There are certain, and I've talked about this book on CGS on more than one occasion. We did a Shang Chi spotlight, for example. But there are certain books when I look at my whole history of reading comics that had such an indelible impact on me that, it, to the point where it made me aware of what comic books were capable of, and and how they weren't they weren't just funny books per se when you go by some of the sort of popular culture stereotypes. And you know, I got this book a ninth and so I was nine years old. And even at that, you know, tender age, I realized I was reading something that wasn't like most of the comics I had read up to that point. And as I, I've read this story hundreds of times since then. and each time I, I look at it, it really does take my breath away. A- and I realize, you know there's certain like in any art form, there's certain moments where, The medium transcends, and it's it's more than just what people expect it to be. And from the moment you open the cover, and you see the splash page, and you go, "Well, this is should be in a museum. Like this is some of the most breathtaking art I've certainly up to that point as a kid, and then even beyond that, I've ever seen in a comic. And and I'll do, the, I'll do a quick plot summary in just a moment. I have to, I just have to, you know, pontificate for a moment because every time I look at this book, I, it reminds me of why I love the comic book medium. Um, so, as many people no doubt know, Shang Chi has been a mainstay of the Marvel Universe since he was introduced uh, in the early Bronze Age. I think I want to say he was introduced in Marvel Special Edition um, before he got his own title.
2: Well, he he uh, was introduced and, in Special Edition, I think, issue fifteen. And I think it stayed Special Edition 15 and 16, and by 17, it was called Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu.
3: absolutely clutch. If Murd's bringing the ammunition to me in the foxhole, you're getting the ammunition ready at the supply depot, sir.
2: <laughs> I appreciate it. And okay. just, just, just to take that a step further, just to not that I can compete with Mr. Murd, but just to take it a step further, before Issue 15, it was a Thor reprint series.
3: Yes, it was. Yes, it was. You know your business. Well done. So, and Shang Chi had a lengthy run. I mean, the book ran to issue 125, I believe, something like that. Yes. Um, And as you mentioned, maintaining that special edition numbering, which is common in many for many Marvel books when they would cross over from like a multiple feature title to a single character title book. Um, And you know, Shang Chi originally began as he was clearly inspired by you know the kung fu craze. You know that was sweeping the United States early 70s. I mean, Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon, one of my favorite films, is a classic example of that. Iron Fist was born from that same you know sort of zeitgeist. And but Shang Chi had legs because the the book long surpassed the kung fu craze, and they're they're making a movie for him now for in the MCU. So the character has been around; he's got quite a history. Um, And Gene Day, who was a Canadian artist. Who died of a coronary at the age of 31? Um, apparently, he was so dedicated to his work that he, he just spent endless hours, you know, slaving away at his drawing board. When you look at the detail of the artwork here, which he also inked, you you can imagine that. Um, it, reminds, so, it reminds
0: me of Mike Diodato's, uh work a little bit.
3: I, I would say Mike Diodato's work reminds people of Gene Day's work.
0: And that is, and that is fair.
3: <laughs> um, yeah, I'm I'm gonna be very reverent here because this is one of my all-time favorite artists in the comic book medium, um, and it's not just this book. I've, I've looked a lot of stuff. I mean, he didn't actually do that much because he didn't live that long, but he did a, he did a fairly lengthy run on Master of Kung Fu. Um, and in this period in the character's history, he's Shang Chi was was, the, was the, in the story was the son of Fu Manchu, and and as many people know. Marvel had the rights to those pulp characters for a period of time, and then they lost it, which is why the Shang-Chi books were reprinted in trade for many years. It was only just recently in the past few years they did a four, beautiful four omnibus collection because they, they got the rights back of the whole series. Um, and the basic just was that Shang-Chi broke away from his father and his empire and tried to go out on his own and, and live a you know an ethical, upright life away from his father's you know, corrosive influence… And he ends up working for uh, British Intelligence, uh, and at this point in the series, he's, he's kind of off – away from that, but he's still doing work for N- Nayland Smith, who's another pulp character who's like now doing kind of like a freelance uh, intelligence business. And he is sent on a mission to – is it Hong Kong or China? Uh, I don't Hong remember. Kong. What's that? It, it's Hong Kong. Thanks, Bert. And – Basically, Fu Manchu is dead at this point, in air quotes, in the story. But his minions are still active, and uh, Fu Manchu had a cult of highly skilled warriors sworn to him unto death, called the Si Fan. And they're all, almost like mystical beings, and you know, they had this really—I mean, with with Jade, with with Gene Day's artwork, he had this amazing armor. And one of them is sent to assassinate. a a couple, a woman who's used an elixir that gave her sort of everlasting youth that Fu Manchu used and her aging blind archer. And Doug Monk based this on, I believe, a Chinese uh, fable, and it's called A Fantasy of the Autumn Moon. And the the gist of the story is that Shang-Chi, who's always – it's a theme throughout the character's arc. He's always sort of torn about. You know, what he's doing. He talks about like games of deceit and death. I'd and really like to be a fisherman, and he's kind of struggling with his, his role as a warrior and, and why he's doing what he's doing and who he's working for and so forth. And in this story, uh, he, he goes to see the couple to try to protect them from the Sai Fan, and Monk weaves the Chinese fable into this uh, Shang-Chi adventure, and ultimately, the Sai Fan. Uh, tracks down the couple cuz even though Fu Menchu's dead the Sai Fan is still intends to carry out his mission and Shang Chi you know takes him on in, in mortal hand to hand combat which is incredibly breathtaking in terms of the artwork i mean it's gene day new at a stage of martial arts fight um, and you know the story ultimately ends tragically and and Shang Chi you know he he survives but nobody else does um and it, it, again, they remind you what what, what a lonely uh, path he walks as the warrior. Um, and that, that's – I don't, I don't want to go into it too much because I really want people to read this story. It's, it's, again, it's Master of Kung Fu 114. Um, but for me, the artwork in this book is on another level. I, 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 I don't even know how he did this because – I don't know how – I mean how long did it take him to produce this because he had to do – it was on a monthly schedule – and I can see why the guy might have maybe even worked himself to death. I, I don't want to say that definitively, but the the talent and skill and dedication that went into the, just this one issue is, is breathtaking. Like when we talked about in the Machine Man book, how we were, some of us were kind of disappointed with you know Ditko wasn't at his prime and the art field you know in many ways felt kind of rote. You're on a whole nother level with this one here. Um, the level of detail and armor in surroundings in combat the use of of, of lights and darks. Uh, Christy Shields' uh, coloring is also very important to the story. Uh, This is, for me, comic books as literature. So that's why I chose it.
2: I want to start by mentioning that uh, I didn't have access to this issue, so I started looking online to try and find what I could. Uh, I've I've recently developed an interest in getting my – collection of Master of Kung Fu comics together. So so far I think I have twenty five issues in my in my collection. And uh, you know, when I go to shows I've been looking in the dollar bins and the two dollar bins and seeing, you know, what holes I'm able to fill. Uh, but I didn't have this one, uh, and I found it, Bill and I, uh, for a Halloween episode, actually, we had a, an issue of House of Mystery that we didn't have access to, and Bill's daughter had found it on a website, so I plugged it into the website to see if I could find it, and that's actually where I was able to get a hold of this. So I just want to give a plug to that, because if people want to see this book, uh, it's, there's a, web, a website called Read Comic Online. And then there's a search bar at the top of it, and I put in Master of Kung Fu, and it gave me a list of issues, and 114 was one of them, so I was able to click on it and, and read it online you know, at no cost. So if anybody uh, you know, wants to see what Chris is talking about with this artwork, that is available to you uh, at no cost, so that's kind of nice. Uh, I assume it's somehow licensed because it's such a an open website that i'm just thinking it's probably you know marvel would have a cease and desist going if it wasn't uh so somehow they must have either these books are available or they licensed it somehow whatever or at least i hope that's the case
0: it's definitely not licensed uh that, that much i can 100 percent tell you uh it's uh it's one of those websites that uh somehow still survives even though uh, many others have been shut down but i can 100 percent Confirm to you that that's not a Wicca's website.
2: Okay, well, I, can I also hate
0: also read it on Marvel Unlimited too, but you have to pay for that.
2: Yeah, I hate to promote stuff that that's, that's going to be uh that I'm, I'm you know hurting somebody with, but
0: that's. I I, I have 100% used that website myself, whether whether I like it or not, uh, occasionally. So I, I I I understand why people might go that route. As long as people go ahead and buy some other comics uh, to even it out, then I'm a okay with that.
2: Okay, there you go. That's, that's definitely one way of looking at it with balance. Uh, I just, you know, the big thing as I was going through this issue is I am, uh, as Chris said, I'm overwhelmed by the artwork. I think it's absolutely gorgeous. And one of the things that really jumped out at me is the splash page. Oh. Gene, Gene Day felt clearly so proud of his work on that splash page that he signed it, which you don't usually see that on interior art. Yep. So, and let's I mean, also
3: mention that there are multiple two-page spreads in this story as well. Oh,
2: and they're not—they're not, they're not two-two-page spreads where the artist is taking a day off to, no. you know, to. I, I drew one two-two-page spread and it's got two characters fighting each other and that's it. No, these are two-page spreads with multiple multiple panels on them and a lot of detail work.
0: Well, and, and the other thing, I've mean mentioning the coloring uh, beforehand, uh, especially during this era. Like the, you, you before the days of show coloring, coloring could be so hit or miss. Yep. You know, it, it could be it could be something where you know, say for like some of the earlier issues of Sandman, uh, you know, on it in comics, uh, or of course uh, 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 the, uh, some of the other uh, issues uh, that that uh, that have you know, like Brian Ouellette did that since reboard because he felt like he, he didn't quite capture what he wanted back in the day. Uh, So he went ahead and redid it. Um, It's such a hit or miss uh, process. And this is some of the best coloring period that I have seen in a comic from this era. And I just just have to applaud that. It's I mean, uh, to to begin with, you know, the, the the you know, the pencils are great as is but it just adds that extra layer to and shading and the shadowing and, and the, and the depth that is just so rich and fluid. And, and it's just, it's, it's, it's marvelous to behold. It really is.
2: It, it is. And yet this is also artwork that if, if it were in black and white, I would still be in awe of it.
0: Oh my God. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
2: We should point
3: out also that, um, the Master of Kung Fu series, in, almost all of it was written by Doug Monk. Doug Monk didn't create Shang-Chi. He was created by uh, Jim Starlin and um, – oh, hell. It's like I'm failing here terribly.
2: Uh, Give me one minute and I'll find out for you.
3: Uh, Englehart, I believe. And they wrote the first couple issues, and then Monk took over. It. The character is his baby. Like he, he – he totally developed the world of Shang-Chi, and he was working with Paul Glacy, Mike Zeck, and then Gene Day. So when you read the whole series, there's a level of sophistication in it that you're not going to see a lot of other comics. And the Bronze Age had a lot of – had a, you see kind they sort of up the ante in sophistication, a lot of Marvel books in the 70s going into the 80s. But this one for me is in a class by itself, and… By the time you get to the Gene Day era, which is near the end of the title's run, Monk is just firing on all cylinders because he knows his characters so well because he's he's developed them now over several years. And, and for me, that when you the, the day the day sort of era of Shang Chi is the culmination. or I that's mean, just great about the character, and and he has a great supporting cast as well. Um, and when you wrap that in with this artwork. You're, get, you're getting comics at, the, at their peak, you know, when it comes to what you're you're seeing in, in the 1980s. And as and as Ian mentioned, the coloring is just one, you know, fabulous example of that.
0: Does anybody else think the cabbie on page seven is is De Niro? Well, let me
3: take a look.
2: The cabbie on page seven.
0: Yeah, like like right uh, when he's when he's when he's in the cab. Uh, yeah, I see that. I yeah. see
2: the image you're talking about. I'm not necessarily seeing De Niro. I'm not telling you you're wrong by any yeah. stretch, but I'm not really seeing it. I I've, I almost feel like, and I don't think this is intentional, but I almost feel like I see more Sylvester Stallone in that face than De Niro.
3: Yeah. I, I can see that also. Well, yeah. there's a tradition in Shang Chi, especially when Galicia was doing the book, that he would pattern certain characters after
0: movie actors. Hmm.
3: In terms of their faces, so...
0: Yeah, that could be Stallone. Good point.
4: Whether it's De Niro or Stallone or otherwise, it's a Hong Kong version of Saints. Yes. Yes. Dialogue tells us he's not American.
0: Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Well, the the Blind Archer to me almost looks like Fred Mertz from I Love Lucy, so... (laughs) (laughs) What can I what can I say? But it's you know, I, I, I kinda like the fact that the characters are the the characters are all very distinctive in how they're drawn. Uh and I and I love the fact that the art, you know the art the layouts of the pages and the panel structure and everything is all very, very uh you know, it's it's changing page to page. You know, there's no there's no set oh here, we have nine panel grids. There there is no such thing as a nine panel grid in here. Uh, every, every page has a very distinctive layout, uh, as far as how it's, you know, how the panels, panel work is done. Uh, I remember hearing something. I don't remember what podcast they were talking about, but somebody was talking at one time about like almost like lessons that people took in how to navigate through a comic from panel to panel, which almost seems so instinctive that you would never need any kind of lesson. But this book is almost like. It's teaching the lesson because we're going to just throw so many different layouts at you uh, that it, that you're going to have to be able to do it somehow or another.
3: Oh, this this book is a master class. Uh, I mean it, 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 there's such a cinematic feel to it. I, I mean each page – like you can just go to each page and spend a significant amount of time just appreciating the storytelling um, and, and the sense of design and layout and how each panel – it is something new to look at. Um, I mean I'm looking on uh, – this is near the end where he, he's he's about to face the Sai Fan in final battle, and he sees – and it's a dark panel where he just sees a leaf falling in front of Shang-Chi's face, and that kind of lets him know where, where his opponent is. It, it's the the, 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 the the suspension, like the sense of suspense in just that one panel. What do you guys think of the martial arts scenes in this book?
0: oh they're outstanding uh i mean i mean all that uh, talk i had about uh, you know lack of life and movement uh in in the uh in, in the machine man issue uh i i feel the pages moving as i was reading this like almost like i was watching an animation that's how fluid everything felt and how much depth and perspective there was to each so,
2: and it, it's it's worth yeah. noting because we're uh we're we're fawning deservedly so over the artwork so much. Uh but the story is pretty pretty, you know, deep and pretty, you know, oh, significant. Him. I mean uh you know, you earlier you mentioned with regard to the artwork, Chris, you, you called it cinematic. And I think the story is as well uh to me it feels like a combination of kinda of Enter the Dragon and James Bond, which I think is what we're supposed to be getting from Master of Kung Fu at all times. Yeah that's that's but i but that's the way it feels it's kind of you know there's, there's it, it it just feels like you're you're entering a very rich world here and as as i mentioned earlier i have had my interest in this character kindled i, I can't even say rekindled because it's not a character i was particularly into uh but i've had it kindled recently and i've been picking up issues and and my desire is to you know, get them and then do a full read-through of the series. Uh, and just from this issue alone, I don't think I'm going to be disappointed when I do.
3: No, you won't be. I mean, this this issue for me is one of the standouts of the entire series. And also, this is a one and done, which you get – there's so little of that in comics today. I uh, Like, you could – like, if they were going to do a Shang-Chi TV series, they could – this would be an episode. Like, they could just take this story – Transfer to television if they do it properly, and it would be amazing. Um, Merv, what were your thoughts?
2: Hmm.
4: All right, uh, Chris, <laughs> you remembered correctly that uh, you had uh, you provided me a copy of this. Yes, Because Chris is uh, he's uh, he, he's a spreader of the gospel of uh, Master of Funko number one fourteen. This is one that he he really wanted me to experience, so uh, he out of his own it's his own stock at uh, the the former wild pig Comics, gave me a copy of number one fifty for my very own and i sat down and i read it the, for the first time and i fell asleep on it, it i mean I, I could tell that it was good that it was well done but it i just i just wasn't connecting with it for whatever reason. Uh, so I just said, okay, that was a good comic, and I put it aside and uh, didn't think of it again. But then Chris decided to visit it in a more formal, you know, the d- d- discussive format here on uh, Back to the Bins, and so I, I found uh, the copy that he gave me and I read it again. And I'm completely ensorcelled by it, Chris. I mean, I, I think now I-, I come much closer to seeing what's the- And you know what I think the problem was? The first time I read it, it was not Autumn. Ha! Uh-huh. Context is everything for me, yes. for the consumer of, of popular culture, of art, you name it. It's my 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 tastes and perceptions cycle with the seasons, and this is absolutely an autumn story. I mean, it's this thing's just drenched in autumnal imagery. I mean, the title of it is a, a fantasy of the autumn moon. Um, the story is uh, is set during uh, uh, the Festival of the Autumn Moon in Hong Kong, which we're told is uh, in turn based on uh, this uh, ancient Chinese legend of uh, the princess and her blind archer and the, the, the waters of the immortal pool of the dragons and all of that. Um, so I, I think – no wonder I wasn't quite connecting with it the first time around. I was just reading it at the wrong time of year. But now I'm in the right autumn set, and I am just – I, I, I'm floored by what I've encountered in this comic, having read it for the second time. I'm, I'm absolutely seeing things that only kind of made a blip on my mental radar. The first time I half consciously flipped through it months ago, I absolutely agree with everything that's been said about the artwork. It's exquisitely detailed. It's just a, a, a perfect like half step between fine art and sequential art. I mean, oftentimes when uh, artists who work in comics try to elevate what they're doing to the level of fine visual arts, it's a, uh, the kinetic quality of comic artwork is what's sacrificed in that process. Uh, that, that's a criticism that's often leveled at uh, Alex Ross. He paints mm-hmm. pretty but they're often pretty static and don't convey like movement or action or sequence of events. Gene Day has no such problem here. Um, you know, Ian put it very well when he said that a lot of these uh, multi-panel, double-page spreads, which are you know, brilliantly choreographed and expertly laid out, you know, the, the page and panel composition is top-notch, but the, the action is definitely brought, painstakingly brought across in these uh, little panels that, as Ian said, look like you're looking at uh, a strip of cells uh, in a, an animation film. Um, so it, it's, it, the cinematic quality that you mentioned, Chris, is absolutely there. Um, uh, but best of all, though, it's mood, mood, mood. This thing yeah. is just sopping in mood, uh, created not only in the way that uh, Monk uh, verbally – tells the story it's, it's, it's very evocative prose and somehow he manages to weave together such disparate elements as ancient chinese legends and early 80s rolling stones lyrics oh. and have it all hang together as a cohesive and affecting whole uh, but the just the visual dimension is just so gorgeous uh, the detail he puts into his artwork and uh, just the, the, the page and panel layouts so he knows when to give us just one big image and when to give us a, a beautifully rendered sequence of smaller panels and just the way that those panels are placed on a single page. I look at uh, the page where they retell uh, the legend of the princess and the archer. beautiful. So the, yeah, the, the the dragon rearing up out of the pool to impart his wisdom on the couple and bless their marriage. And just like the, the decorations around the border, it's like an illuminated manuscript. It's really kind of tragic that uh, this man didn't live to give us a little more work. As, as you said, he, he died within probably within months of this thing seeing print. But yeah, it's it, it's it is a an ideal autumn comic book because it just it, it, it just the way it just kind of hovers on the threshold between absolutes, between the material and the ethereal, between the temporal and the timeless, between youth and age, between life and death, but kind of teetering towards you know, age and death, just like the season of autumn itself. Like Autumn, the, the, reading this comic is a liminal phenomenon, and the fact that it, it, it's it, – as you pointed out, Chris, that it's a self-contained story. It's a one and done, um, which gives you a lovely encapsulated look at not only Shang-Chi and what his world was at this time, but also oh. just this, this, this wonderfully little bookended and hermetically sealed pellet of wonder that Shang-Chi encounters on one dreamlike October night. I'm assuming it's October. It doesn't tell us the month, but it just—it it feels like. It. Uh, now we're introduced to Nayland Smith, to his love interest Leiko, and I think the little framing sequence there at the beginning at Stormhaven Castle in Scotland, and then we travel by map to get to Hong Kong, and we kind of enter this dream space in which the rest of the story occurs, and then Shang-Chi at the end of it is forced to kind of reawaken to his life, but uh, not unaltered by the experience he's had and the weirder he had with him. It's. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's beautiful. It, it is one of the more beautiful comics that I've ever read. And I'm just sorry that uh, it took so long for me to go through the different uh, phases of the moon for that. No mindset was in place that I could really see the comic. But if, if I try to read this thing again in February, I'll fall asleep on it again. <laughs> but for now, it's beautiful. And for now, if we're. I might as well just say straight A's across the board for when we get to the rating
2: part of it. Yeah, I think we're all going to say that, you know, it's funny because I normally not only welcome, uh, but I I look forward sometimes to disagreeing with fellow panelists uh, when I feel they can articulate their thoughts, uh, you know, well enough that we can actually have a, a discourse on why we disagree. Uh, and I know certainly you're uh, more than capable of articulating your thoughts, Adam. But I have to tell you, when I when you first started your, your little preamble about how you read it and were underwhelmed by it the first time, uh, I felt palpably palpably disappointed. Uh, and and I don't have the love of this that Chris does, but just you know having read through it and just been kind of taken in so much by it. Uh, to hear you start to talk about it in a way where you're like, eh, <laughs> it was, I was going to find that somewhat depressing, but uh, I'm glad, you, no, I'm hard glad hard. that the season has uh, led you to liking it as much as you do now.
4: It was never the comic ball, it was me.
2: <laughs> it sounds like we're breaking up. <laughs> it's, it's not you, it's me.
4: Shang-Chi, number
0: one, can't fix me. This was my first exposure to uh, to Masters of Kung Fu. Oh. I, uh, I have I have not read it before. Um, luckily, it is all available on Marvel Unlimited at the yep. moment. Um, so I'm 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 basically going through their shitty system and clicking clicking add to library on everything because uh, that's the only thing Marvel Unlimited does not do well. Um, so that that's even further to what you were saying earlier, Chris. Is the mm-hmm. you got to go. Uh, issue by issue to add to the just an entire series to your library off the top of your back. But I, I, I loved every single minute of this package here and I, I, I want to see more because this is a, this is an artist that, uh, deserved so much more, uh, than, than unfortunately, you know, his short life had to offer. And, uh, I, I can only imagine what 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 more Gene Day would have looked like, and what series he he would have he would have graced his his, his pencils on, uh, and his inks uh, later on in life. But I'm very glad that we have what we have, and Masters of Kung Fu is now, uh, I now understand what what Chris keeps talking about.
3: Ian, <laughs> yeah, I'm honored. Yeah, it's it's a series that, and and pull out the nail on the head. There's a James Bond slash Enter the Dragon vibe to it. But and that could get that could go in in a very um, sort of kitschy direction. But Monk elevates everything. And then when he ha- when he's working with the artist, he's working with Glacy Zek Day. You're getting something that's very special, and it, it wasn't like any other comic Marvel was producing at this time. And it was in the Marvel Universe firmly, but it, it was it was still in a whole other plane. So. Uh, in fact, one of the points I want to make, because I forgot about this as I'm looking through the, the, my original copy here, is that even Marvel Editorial understood they had something. Because when you go to the bullpen, bulletin page, remember they used to do the hype box in the 80s? Mm-hmm. They'd highlight certain books, and they, they say, Master of Kung Fu 114, for this one, writer Doug Monk sequestered himself in the library researching ancient Chinese legends. And he's come up with a chillingly authentic story, see for yourself. So and that's the same month G.I. Joe number 1 came out but they were hyping Master of Kung Fu 114. So I'm glad you appreciate it, gentlemen.
2: I I, like it. You know, as I mentioned, I'm slowly picking up issues of this series and 114 has not been picked up by me yet. But when I'm in a, you know, when I, when I'm going through like a dollar box or a $2 box and they have these things in them, I still have enough books on my want list that I don't just focus on one series. I'll, cherry pick here and there through different stuff uh but i can tell you for a fact that if as i do that if uh this issue is in there i will take this above any other issue of the series right now
3: well yeah and the gene day stuff is at the end of the series so you should be able to find a lot of these in bargain bins yes. so happy
2: hunting. yeah I, i've so far you know i had none <laughs> until very recently and uh uh i think you know Thankfully, I've I've actually gotten issues 15 and 16 on fairly low prices.
3: Oh, great! Oh, you uh, mean the original special edition
2: issues? Yes. Okay. Uh, so so I, I feel like the hardest part of the job is already done. Uh, now it's just a matter of tracking down the you know the other issues, and I have to correct what I said earlier about it being a Thor reprint series. I was mistaken. Uh, it was Thor for issues one through three, and then for issues four through fourteen, it was, it Nick, Fury? It was Nick Fury. That's right, or Sergeant Fury. Sergeant yes. Fury, yes, That's not right? Nick Fury, not not the spy. Uh, yeah. So. Alan yeah. Yes. So
3: one last comment I want to make because I'm just looking. If you look at page sixteen. Um, when he confronts the Sai Fan in final battle, and Shang Chi finds the the, the 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 corpse of the archer, and the, the design of the Sai Fan's armor is is breathtaking that day has conceived, and and as the Sai Fan appears in shadow, just the eyes of his helmet illuminated, and then you see like, scintillating light spangling off his armor, it's incredible artwork, and then you see Shang Chi's face as the rage consumes him because he's so angry at what this the murder this man has committed. And he just lets, like, from the elemental core of his being, this, this, this battle cry. It, it is the. I, I can't. I can't put this artwork. In, like, when you look at like comic book artwork, this is this is just breathtaking stuff. Uh, my God, Ian is right on the money. The fact that this Gene Day died as young as he did. If you go on Wikipedia, you know they have his his uh, bibliography of work. It's 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 pre- It's not that much. A lot of like Marvel like single issues or a couple issues. Um, some fanzine stuff, an issue of Tales of the New Teen Titans, a Swords of, of Cerebus issue three. That's it. He did some Savage Sword of Conan. Uh, he did a, he did some Star Wars I Remember he did a classic Star Wars cover, which you've all seen with Boba Fett on it, which is is one of the classics of the Marvel run. But what what a tragedy! God.
2: Yeah. Well, at at thirty one, I mean, we can all appreciate how young that is. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's it, it, just terrible. He did Thor number three hundred. Oh wow! Which is, uh, that's if I remember right, they were doing the uh, Rings of Nibelung uh, retelling with Thor as uh, Siegfried, and I think per- three hundred was. Oh. I think three hundred was the culmination of that story, if if I'm remembering correctly.
0: Yeah, so so many so many great artists we lose early in this business. I think, I think of him. I think of Waringo. You know, yep. uh, Mike yep. Turner. But you know, just uh, so many so many artists that I'd love to see more of that unfortunately didn't quite happen that way.
3: And last thing I'll
0: say is uh,
3: our beloved Pants in his quest to always discover original artwork. This year, found and purchased for me because it's one of my holy grails, a Gene Day page from Master of Kung Fu. Wow, nice! It's from issue 116. It's, it's, I mean, it's. And by the way, we talked about black and white, so I'm looking at the, his black and white work. Huh. like the uh, I'll, next, you know, I'll, I'll show it. Uh, well, I think I know. I think at least has seen this. I don't know if Ian Ian has, but um, it, it's just this This guy was in the class by himself
2: i'm I'm gonna ask you a favor chris when sure. uh, when this episode posts on back to the bins uh, and I you know we have a back to the bins Facebook page. Would you mind taking a picture of that and posting it on the uh, Facebook page? Oh, sure, absolutely. I appreciate it because I think anybody listening to this uh, no, well, I, I really want to see it, but I think it would be nice to that in, in getting it for me to see it, everybody gets to who, you know, who's part of the uh, Facebook group. You bet. All
3: right, well, A-plus for me, gentlemen, all across the board.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't think you're getting any debate from anyone. Yeah, pretty much. This this is just a, an excellent choice. So I have to say, so far uh, every every time I've had you guys on, I'm not disappointed with your choices of books. Oh,
3: uh, thanks, Paul.
2: It's, it's 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 always a pleasure to talk about what you guys bring, and uh, e- either it's something that's just exceedingly good like this, or it's something that sparks a lot of conversation, which either way is a winner. Mm-hmm. Did, you, did you
0: did you ever read More Invincible? By the way, speaking of uh, of, of former picks of mine that I brought to the table.
2: I, I read more of it, but I still never finished it because, uh, you know, a squirrel went by and I got distracted. <laughs> I'm,
0: I'm just glad you at least read a little bit more to see, to see what it's all about. So yeah, I, I it, what I read of
2: that series I thought was terrific. Excellent. Uh, and, and I think we even talked about it when you were on that, uh, I am a bigger fan of that than, uh, the walking dead as far as, uh, Kirkland's writing. Kirkwin's writing, excuse me.
0: Right there with you. And Kirkland brand products are very good too.
2: Yeah, those are good too. All right. I'm, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to save my book for another show. As much as I enjoy talking to you guys, it's, uh, coming up on uh, 11 o'clock soon. And
3: and,
2: and, yeah, and I'm old. Uh, (laughs) so, uh, but I, you know, it's always a pleasure to have you guys on. I, 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 I really would love to have you on more often, but I know it's hard to, uh, to to sync the schedules. Well,
0: whenever you whenever you uh, it, whenever we can sync it, we'll definitely make it
3: happen. Hell yeah, Paul. We really appreciate you coming on. It's always a great time. It's a pleasure on our end too,
2: Paul. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm happy to hear that. Uh, thank you. Thank you guys for coming on, and thank you everybody for listening. And if if you're not already subscribed to Comic Geek Speak, I I can't imagine. Yep. So. We'll just, I don't even think I have to give a plug for you. Uh, I think it's, it's much more likely that there's listeners of Comic Geek Speak who aren't subscribed to this, <laughs> <laughs> who, who might get exposure to it on the cross-pollination.
0: Uh, I'll just say for those listeners that are yours, uh, just make sure to listen to our most recent Black Widow Spotlight because it is a doozy. I haven't, uh, seen, yes.
2: that. I haven't seen that yet.
0: It, 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 it's... Uh coming out uh, shortly after we're done recording here, so by the time it hits your feet, it'll be, it'll be out and running, but it's my uh, first time I ever got to be in the studio, and it, it was a rollicking good time, and Shane was there, and uh, can't get any better than that. And Ian, you it. were
3: in fine borscht belt humor, let me say that, by the way.
0: <laughs> I, I am pleased, my friend.
3: I know, I know what they love. I,
2: I look forward to that because your spotlight episodes are some of my favorites.
3: Thanks, Paul. Yep.
2: Alright, thank you, and once again, we'll, thank you everybody for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to
1: our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com, or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook, Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corp of Milan, Italy, all rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.